Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, welcome back everyone. On this episode of Conversation about the Olympics with former Mets All-Star and Yankees coach Lee Mazzilli. How's that exactly? Well, before the Brooklyn-born and raised Mazzilli embarked on a 14-year Major League career, including a key role with the 1986 World Champion Mets, he was a national champion speed skater. From grade school in the 1960s into his teenage years in the early 70s, Mazzilli won eight championships at his age levels, and he competed with and against several future Olympians. So we talk about speed skating from his Brooklyn roots through the decision of choosing baseball over a chance to make the Olympics and some perspective on the Olympic speed skaters we watch every four years, including legends of the sport like Bonnie Blair and Eric Hyden. But after we spoke about that sport, we shifted gears to baseball and that led to a whole other discussion. So stick around for some great stories about Mazzilli's playing days in the 1970s and 80s involving Hall of Fame teammates like Tom Seaver, Willie Mays, and Joe Torre, and of course, his thoughts on the current labor situation and the game of baseball today. Here is my conversation with Lee Mazzilli. Maz, first question I want to ask you, it's pretty simple. How does a kid from Brooklyn get into speed skating? That's a great question because <laughs> to this day, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, you know, my, my dad did that with my uncle, I'm going to say pro- probably like in the, in the 40s. They did that when they were younger, in the 40s and 50s. And all of a sudden, you know, my dad just brought me to the skating rink and we skated and I was with my sister and my brother and uh, I just, uh, I, I fell, I fell in love with it. I liked it, you know? Uh, and then we started to go to different rinks. So, you know, at, at that time there's very much open skating, not as it is now. So mm-hmm. you had a rink in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, which was close to me at home. Mm-hmm. And then they had a rink in uh, right by, uh, well, the old uh, Chase Stadium was in Flushing. There oh, was okay. a skating rink there. They had one in Yonkers. Um, so there was several rinks that you can go and train for speed skating at that time. And then uh, once I got into it, we we would go up into meets. Uh, I would skate in Saratoga uh, in a wintertime on a lake, uh, Lake George, Lake Placid. Uh, then you would make the eastern run of the eastern seaboard. You would go up to Pittsfield, um, all down, all down uh, uh, the east coast. So that's really how I got into it. You know, it was a, a kind of a, a weekend thing. You know, you train during the week at Prospect Park, um, 
and then you would get into events. And I, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking at, I don't know what age, seven, eight, somewhere around there, nine, when yeah. I probably started. That's when, is that, that's when you did your yeah. first competitive meets when you were seven or eight? I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I'm going to say in that, that range. And then it was, then, then you belong to a club, a skating club, because obviously back in, I'm going to say what, so if you, you know, look at in the sixties that I was doing this started, um, there were a lot more events, a lot more, uh, uh, clubs and it was, it was big, you know, it, it was a big, I don't want to say like league, but a big following in skating. There was a lot of speed skating back then. So you were, um, what, what events did you do? I know it, it differs as you uh, get older, the, the distances change, but were you a sprinter? Were you a distance guy? What were you? Well, I was a sprinter at, at the beginning because that's all you did. So uh, it wasn't measured in meters like skating today, like speed, speed skating is done today, like a 500 meter, a thousand meters. So when you are younger, so let's say when you're seven and eight, they really didn't have long distances. So you would skate a 110-yard race. Okay. And then you would skate a 220-yard race. And uh, the younger you were, probably to 220 was probably the longest event. And then you went up to a 440-yard race, which was like a quarter-mile race. And then you had a three-quarter-mile race. And um a mile race, uh, and so on and so forth. So, and then you had an 880 race. So they kind of, you know, brought the young kids up little by little. And every year that, or every group that you went up, they extended the uh, distances of races. Now, when, when you're playing baseball, I know when you were a kid, you were a fast runner. Does being a fast runner equate to being a fast speed skater? Yeah. Great question. Yes, I believe so. Uh, and everyone said that, but I, I believe that because of the stretching that was involved. And one of the things back then, and like I said, you're going back, I don't know, 40, <laughs> 50 years ago, yeah. you know, yeah. The only really thing that you really did to train a big thing, obviously the skating part of it, you trained all the time, uh, but was just really stretching a lot of stretching. And I, and I think stretching at a young age, uh really helped you know i can you know one of the things as you know you know when i came up i could run yeah uh and um yeah i think skating had something to do with it yeah what were meets like now i'm, I'm asking you to go back and think about over 50 years ago but when yeah. you are competing in these meets at 8 10 12 years old yeah. what do you remember about the environment of a speed skate cold cold. <laughs> cold 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 uh, you know, you can see the uniforms that they have on now that uh, speed skaters wear. And it wasn't so much aerodynamic as it is now. But you just basically had uh, a pair of like tights on like like that and, and a jersey, a pullover shirt, a nylon, very, very, very thin. So you know, you'd huddle up in big uh, hoodies and coats and go on the lake and you wait till your your race was coming up, and you whip off that coat, you skate, and you whip it back on. Uh, so it was cold, man. Uh, people were lined up outside on the lake camping, and you know having all the hot drinks that you that you need to stay <laughs> yeah. warm, little fires and things of like that. But I could tell you one time, and boy, I, I hope I wish I could find this. So maybe if someone is ever listening to this. Uh, there was a, 
I skated in a national championship mm-hmm. in St. Paul, Minnesota. And there's proof of this because it was in the New York Times article. First time I've ever uh, went to a national championship. And it was in St. Paul, Minnesota. I think it was on Lake Cuomo in St. Paul, Minnesota. And it was 52 below zero. That was, <laughs> that was the first. 52. So, uh, you know, I was like 11 or 12 years old. And you didn't feel any pain at that time. But until you start reading about it, it's like, God, I was 52. It's 52 below, Sweeney. And uh, so, so I, I wound up winning the national championship as, a, as an 11 year old. Uh, which was just really unheard of because we skated in the East and most of all the good skaters were in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So we never had the facilities, but I was on wide world of sports. Wow. And I believe the uh, announcer was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was Chris Shankel. Sure. Did war- is he, he's the one that did war- wide world of sports, right? And yeah, there was yeah. a clip that, that we, you know, back then, you know, you had like, three or four or five channels on your TV. And that was it. Yeah. Wide world of sports was, was a huge event. And, uh, I was on that and I'm trying to find that tape of, uh, of wide world of sports with Chris Shankle. He did like a quick interview of me at 11 years old. So, uh, if anyone's listening, I could track that down. Boy, I would love to see that, but, that clip. What kind of it? Listen, I, I've known you for a long time. What kind of an interview would eleven-year-old Lee Mazzilli <laughs> given on TV? Oh, that's why I want to see it. You know, I want to hear it again. I have no idea. I would love to know what I said. You know, I really would. Um, I just that's yeah. I I don't remember. I really don't. But but I, I know I, I did it. I I saw it many many years later. And I thought, oh, that's great, and really didn't think anything of it. Yeah. And now that you get older, you say, boy, I just, I would love to see that tape. So I'm, I'm going to try to track it down somehow. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And you were, you were winning multiple national championships for your age groups, right? 
Yeah, I won a lot of nationals. I won you know, like around eight, I think seven, eight or nine U, uh, U.S. Open championships uh, uh, at that time. So uh, I, I, I didn't lose very often, you know. Yeah. I, it just, it, it, you know, it's not just, you know, bragging about it. It's just that yeah. it was something that I really did well, you know. Um, and I always, I moved up and I, I, towards the end, I skated against older skaters, you know, uh, to get into better competition. And that's how you got better. You you skated with people that were better better than you were, or you try to compete with them. I'm I'm curious, like how the baseball mindset and the skating mindset kind of blend together for you, because as you would find out, I'm I'm sure you found this out as a kid too, as a high school kid, that baseball is a humbling game, and you knew that during your professional career, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, but even as a high schooler, there were times when you know guys would get you out. But you know, as a speed skater at that age, I mean you seemed like you were, you know, it was, it was hard to think of losing when you're winning all these national championships. So did the mindset of being baseball, being a humbling game, which you still played very well at that age and having this other sport that you were pretty dominant in did, I mean, did they conflict at all for you? No, I I think, you know, when you're an athlete, young or old, and it's something that we have that's in our DNA, and we have this competitiveness in us that we just don't lose. And it's very hard to explain that. So even now, like, if I, you know, I'm going to be 66 I'm, and I'm going to be 60. I'm in my 60s right now. And I, and I, I, I feel in my mind, because all the years that I, that I played, is that I feel like I still can go up there right now <laughs> and get a guy in from second base. I yeah. really do right now at my age. But in reality, I know I can't. You know I can't. Everyone knows I can't. But for us as as athletes, we feel in our mind we can do it. Now, we know we can't physically do it, but I don't know how to describe that. You know, you could could laugh and say, ah, you can't do it. You can't do it. But there's some (laughs) kind of like, there's something in you like saying, yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. I think I can. And, you know, and I guess what you're trying to uh, talk yourself into is like, Give me a shot, man. You know, give me a shot. Let me see if I can. You know, so it's like a zillion to one that you can't, but you just think that you can. And that's the, uh, I guess, competitive edge as athletes that you never want to lose, that you won't always want to have. And you could say this about a, a, a football player or a basketball player or high, whoever it may be, tennis. I'm sure that they, they feel that they can go on the court or the ice and do that one last a heroic thing you know mm-hmm. so i think that's a good good quality or to have a good trade to have as an athlete you don't want to lose that you know the, you always uh, think you have one last one in you <laughs> right you be on your dying bed you know uh you know you got like three minutes to live and you're gonna say yeah give me another shot <laughs> listen i'm sure you might be able to get into the uh under 70 speed skating events somewhere and probably take yeah. you don't know no, that's no fun. Well, <laughs> under 70. <laughs> that's good. All right, I want to go to the other 61 and I'll be ready. <laughs> the two most famous American speed skaters are Bonnie Blair and Eric Hyden. And you have a little history with both of them, right? Yes, I do. And, you know, uh, you know, Bonnie Blair and her family, you know, they, they grew up right not too far from, uh, from where you live. Uh, they're, I think they're in South Salem or somewhere there. So we skated against them as kids i skated against bonnie blair's brother mm-hmm. uh robbie blair 
uh, in my age group. And she had a whole family, her and her sister. And, you know, Bonnie, was she, she's a few years younger than I. So she, she really didn't, you know, kind of skate with us. But, you know, when I went to baseball, she went to, kept skating. And her family and her just turned out to be, uh, you know, great, great skaters for the sport. Medalist in a couple of Olympic games. And she coached. So I got a chance to, uh, I did a, a kind of a fundraiser that I was going to do for speed skating last year for the Olympics this year. And Bonnie and I got on a, a Zoom uh, called Raise Money. Uh, and, it, and on the phone call before, uh, and I haven't spoken to her, in, uh, it's got to be 30 years maybe. You know, I may have saw her when I was playing, uh, maybe when I was with uh, at the at Wrigley Field or something, but I haven't spoken to him in 30 some odd years. And Sweeney, when I, when I tell you it was like we didn't miss a beat and we spoke last week and it was 30 years and we spoke for about an hour, an hour and a half, just about so much of skating and old times and family. That, that was kind of cool. So, and then uh, Eric Hyden, God bless him. What, what, what a, what an athlete. Uh, I, I, I think I mentioned to, this to you before that what, he has accomplished in Winter Olympics is totally uh, people just, just don't realize because of the exposure is not as big as let's say a track or field event or things of that nature. Um, but what he accomplished in Lake Placid uh, will never be done again. Uh, you know, he won every single event in speed skating and that's equivalent to any distances. Yeah, he well, the sprint was probably his hardest one to win a 500 meter, but he was so good, you know, in 1500, 1000. So he won everything from the sprint to like winning a marathon in track and field. And yeah. it's just unheard of. You know, if he could just watch what he did and say, well, he's the fastest human being in the world on track and field. Oh, by the way, he's going to run the marathon on the last day of the Olympics. And then he wins a gold medal there too, as well. Yeah. And then everything in between. It, it, it's just mind boggling what he did, you know? So, um, and he was a little younger than I was when we were skating. So he really did skate with me one on one. And uh, I never got really a chance to see him after until I was, you know, already out playing ball and stuff like that to really watch what he did in 1980. I think it was 80, right? In Lake Placid. Yeah. And that's what I was going to yeah. ask you. I mean, you're right. It's like watching Usain Bolt win the, you know, set a world record in the hundred and then, and then win the mile or the, you know, the, you know, the marathon or something like that. That's how impressive a feat it was, but you were, he's winning these gold medals at Lake Placid in February, 1980. You had left your speed skating career behind and you were in a pretty good place. I mean, you made the all-star game in 1979. You're hitting a home run in the all-star game in 79. And then a few months later, you're watching Eric Hyden do his thing on, on you know, in your former uh, event. What was that like yeah. at that stage, knowing that you had, you know, you, you had chosen a path and you were successful on that path and you were watching this other guy do what he was doing? Yeah. Because uh, as a fan, you know, you're watching on TV, you're screaming, you're rooting, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Because you're not that, that far removed. So and that it is almost like, I don't know if it's six degrees of separation. You had that connection, you know, and with the Blaz and, and the other skaters. And so, you know, you felt like, you know, you're being you're successful in one sport and they're successful in another sport. And it's just kind of neat that how they both gelled together and knowing that. So, uh, 
when I when I was watching it, I was I was totally amazed. I mean, I didn't I didn't know he was going to be able to get five. Um, you know, I I thought his I thought his toughest event was going to be the five hundred sprint. Yeah. Uh, you know, to win that, and the other ones were going to be pretty much a lock. And, and it's just uh, it's just a fan like you go to the stadium and cheer and yell, and and, and that's what I was doing. So that was kind of neat. All right, so let's backtrack a little bit because you had an opportunity because you're, you know, pretty highly ranked nationally, winning championships in your age groups as a teenager. You get to 1971 and you were actually invited to the training facility um, to train for a possible Olympic bid in 72. Yes, we had the Olympics were in Sapporo, Japan, 1972. So at that time, I was, I, I was really into baseball. I started to get uh, my, my, uh, my niche. So, I, yeah, so I was 16 or 17. I was now I was getting followed uh, that summer. It was a big summer for me for baseball. And back then, um, you know, you had all your scouts were coming out. And all these clubs were coming out to see you. So you were known amongst the baseball circle of someone that was going to be drafted. And I had to make a decision. Because if I would have went to the Air Force Academy at that time where it was being held in Colorado, then I missed the whole baseball season, the summer season. And that was the big summer season to set up for your draft the following year. And uh, you had to make a decision. You know, at that time, you could not be a, be a professional and then have amateur status. So what the question is, what do I want to do? Do, do I want to go, which I did want to go to the Olympics, or do I want to play baseball and have these scouts watching me? And it was a hard decision, but it was an easy decision, if that makes sense. It, yeah. You know, I, I, I love baseball. I mean, I love skating. I love what I did. I really wanted to, to try to, to go to the Olympic Games. Uh, and then I'm saying I want to play baseball. And, you know... You know that old saying, you, you know, you never forget your first love as yeah. a girlfriend when you're growing up. You always got your first love, you know, who, who you dated. And, and and that's that was baseball. It was my first love. I had to go back to my first love. So I made that decision. And you know what? I never looked back for a second. Um, not for a second. I said, oh, nah, it's baseball. That's what I want to do. Today, I look back all the time. And, you know, in, in the last few years, and then you get a chance to watch the Olympics. And I, and I always look back and I say, you know, now the only thing I regret is I really wish I had a chance to make the Olympic team or boy, if you made the Olympic team, how cool would it be to say that you are an Olympian, mm -hmm. an Olympian athlete uh, to represent the United States? How cool is that? You know, so. That's the thing that I, I, I kind of wish I, I, I was able to do both. But like I said, at that, at that day and age, you were not allowed to be a professional and amateur. Nowadays, everyone is a professional in the Olympics. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage 
to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypod Podcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odyssey podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. You know, I'm curious, though, you say you didn't have any regrets back then. The next Olympics in 76, it's February 1976, and you're about to report to spring training after, now in 75, you were in A-ball. So it's not like you had reached the major leagues yet. You would later in 76, but right. spring training in 76, uh, right before spring training in 76, you haven't made it out of A-ball. And there's a couple of guys who won medals on, for Team USA that are right around your age group, and you, you probably competed against at some point in your life. Um, Dan Emmerfall won a mm. bronze medal in the 500. Uh, he's nine yep. months younger than you. And Peter Muller won a gold in the 1,000 meter. He's a year older than you. So do you remember these guys winning medals yeah. and thinking about, yes. like, you know, hey, I was with them. I was one of them. Yes, um, a- absolutely. And, and also, you know, cheering them on as well, you know, pulling mm-hmm. for them. But um, it, it really didn't matter. Even being enabled, it didn't matter because I was still a professional athlete. So okay. uh, there was nothing that I, I could say, oh, look, you know what? Let me take the summer off or let me you know, let me see if I could train and, and go back. That, yeah. that was out. So that was out the window. But so, yeah. And I think anytime you skate or compete um, with your fellow uh, skaters or you just your peers or whatever, and you see them do well in different sports, I, I don't know. I, I'm one of those individuals that, cheer cheer for them and want them to do well and excel uh, i don't think most 
athletes, you know, want plays to fail or anything of that nature. So I looked at it as, oh, this is great. And one of us is doing it. All right. So here, here's, here's my key question for you. Dan Immerfall won a bronze medal in the 500 meter sprint with a time of 39.54 seconds. The gold mm-hmm. medal winner from the USSR was 39.17. Could a mm-hmm. 21-year-old Lee Mazzilli have- yes. 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 Oh, yeah. I think I would have been in that in that time range. But, you know, because I was, um, you know, they when I, when I started, it was called Olympic-style skating. Uh, that was on the, on the oval track, outdoor track. But most of the skating when I was, was indoors short track and that was my that was my specialty i love short track uh racing because of you know being fast but being able to to maneuver and and uh uh they, they used to have blocks up there to try to skate around so i i was able to to uh be a guy that would be daring on the ice you know take chances and stuff like that so that was my thing indoor skating but back then, they didn't have short track skating in the Olympics. And that was my thing, more so than the Olympic-style skating of being outside on a 400-meter track. I would have loved to have been able to um, gone back and, and been in short track skating because that was my niche, yeah. short track skating. And as you can see it on TV now, it is very, very exciting, you know, yeah. um, because, you know, when you, you, it's just one slip and you're done. Uh, or one missed turn, you know, and I mean, it's just so right on. Um, and that was my thing. And I would have loved to have done that. And they got mass skating now and they got team relay skating. They didn't have any of that. Yeah. Was just, the team relay is what I was going to ask you about. Like that looks like just mass chaos on these short tracks. Yeah, absolutely. That's when the very first time I saw that, I went, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> I said, they're, not, they're not allowed to be on the inside of that track, you know, because on the inside, kind of like the warm up area and stuff, yeah. and you see skaters with. And I and then I watched it for a while. And I said, "Man, that's neat, man. I, I said, that's kind of cool." So, um, yeah, I wish they would have had that back then. Yeah, yeah, we had some events where you know back you know uh, when I was younger, you know, we skated at you know we had some events at Madison Square Garden and things of like that, some big events. And then we, I would travel to St. Louis, you know, skate St. Louis uh, uh, with a blues play. I remember as a kid skating the nationals there. And I said, oh, man, the St. Louis Blues play on the same ice, you know, things like that. Because you just, you know, you kind of envision all these great athletes and stuff. All right. So we talked a little bit about, like, just being fast in one sport and another, uh, the similarity there. What else? Was there anything else that you learned as a a kid who competed at high levels in speed skating that translated and helped you as your baseball career took off? Oh, I, you know. The competition was, it's always mono or mono, a mono, you know, it's, it's one against one and, and, and skating. You feel like that, you know, well, let me differentiate this, you know, and Olympic style skating, it's, it's more time than one-on-one. Okay. So you're racing against the clock now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back when I played, it was more of a mass skating. So if we had a final, uh, we, we didn't race against time. We, you know, we might had seven, eight, as high as 10 people in a final, but, uh, and then you were skating against each other. So it was more of a, um, kind of, you know, 
lay back, let someone else take the lead. It was like horse racing almost, you know. Mm-hmm. You just you lay in a pack and you watch who you knew who was good. You knew the ones you didn't have to worry about that were not very good skaters. So you kind of concentrated on beating that one person all the time. Um, so that was different. And so it, it was it was kind of learning, you know, your moves when you wanted to go. I, you know, I look at that as the same thing as, you know, playing baseball. Is like, you know, it's you against the pitcher all the time. But um, it, it was different because you just really – focused on the ones that you needed to be and uh that was it you know so time wasn't really a, a major concern of what you skated and i remember skating in one event that we used to have what was called a uh it was called a turkey trot it was it was held on thanksgiving morning and okay. i think it was like a six or ten mile race i forget what it was which was a long one turkey it was like the one event a year, like, you know, uh, man, 10 miles, man. Are you kidding me? Over and over in a circle. So I, you know, and I really never skated that. And then, and then you know, one year I went into that. And and because uh, a fellow skater of mine was in, in on this and it was always our competition. And so was skating in this event. I, I, I forget. It was either a six or 10 mile race. It was one of those two. And. The guy that I wanted to beat was the one that we competed against. And there was someone else that took off on a race. And when I say if it was a six-mile race and it was a, a shorter track than a 440 and a bigger than a short track, so I, so I, I'm just guessing that it was, let's say it was like 80 laps or something like that okay. or nine or 100 laps. That's what it took, you know, okay. to com- compete, <laughs> uh, complete the event. But anyway, this one skater took off on us. And he wasn't he wasn't a, a threat, but he took off like when there was like four miles to go and no one's even bothered saying, Oh, well, he's gonna be dead in like, you know, another mile or two. He's gonna burn out, he's not going anywhere. And the son of a gun held on the whole way and he wound up winning because I lost sight of him. Wow. But I beat I beat the guy that I needed to beat, and I was happy with that. So <laughs> uh but that was kind of a cool event, man. It was they had that every year in Brooklyn. It was at Prospect Park. It was called the Turkey Trot of Thanksgiving morning. So keep an eye. Got to keep your eye on the prize all the time. You mentioned, I mean, obviously, listen, November and um, whether it's in Brooklyn or upstate New York, you're you're skating in cold conditions. You talked about St. Paul. It's minus fifty. Um, when you're playing, I don't know, like an April game at Wrigley Field or at Shea Stadium, do you do you feel cold, or are you sitting there thinking, man, I've been in worse? Uh, no, I feel cold. There's nothing <laughs> worse than being playing in that, in the outfield, a regular field when it's like, you know, minus two degrees with the wind chill and you're, you know, it's just like, oh man, let me get through this game without getting hurt. And maybe tomorrow I'll do well. Now I'll bunt a couple of times today so I don't hurt my hands. Um, but playing in cold weather, you know, cold weather was, it was, you got through that, but it was the cold, it was the wind that always got to me, you know, um, in baseball. I played in Candlestick Park. It was just a tough, tough stadium to play in. You know, God bless Willie Mays, man, what he did in his career. There's no doubt that if he didn't play at Candlestick Park, he would have had 800 home runs, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just, you've been to Candlestick Park, right? No, I never had the pleasure. No. Oh, really? Well, yeah. I would say pleasure. I don't know if it was a pleasure. <laughs> But it was just, um, it was so compelling to get out there because there were so many 
factors of candlestick that were against you. Like uh, other than playing, like the the clubhouse back then was in right field underneath the stands. So once you came out of the clubhouse in candlestick and you walked to the third base side, that's where your your, dugout was. It was a tiny little dugout. I don't even know if it had a bathroom. Yeah, it had a little tiny little bathroom and it was a small dugout. And once you came out, you were stuck. Like you were stuck for for nine. Like you couldn't go anywhere to get loose, get uh, throw. You were there. And if you had to go back into the clubhouse for anything, which no one ever did because you didn't want to say, oh, where's he going? You know, <laughs> you didn't want to say anything. <laughs> he's going uh, to you want to say we're leaving the field. Yeah. Um, or he's going to get something to eat or whatever. You had to walk across the whole field into the right field corner. So, I mean, it was just. Just everything was against you, man. And you just as soon as you went to that park, you was like, oh man, you know. And because you always came, because and, and you know, back then they used to make the West Coast swing like twice a year. You would make all the West Coast stops. Yeah, the West Coast twice a year and the East Coast three times a year. But you would make the West Coast swing. So let's say the Mets started out in San Diego, and then uh, the Phillies would be in Frisco and Montreal. You know, could be in L.A. or whatever. And you hit those three teams. So we would hit each club. We would hit the Dodgers, the um, Padres, and the Giants. But, you know, you go to San Francisco and you come out of San Diego, which was, you know, that's like God's weather up there. It's just magnificent. And you go to L.A. with 70 and San Diego, 80 degrees. And it's just beautiful in July or August. Then you go to San Francisco and it's, 50 in the 40s at nighttime and mm-hmm. summertime it's just so brutal mm-hmm. and then the wind and you play the day games and you couldn't see and then i it's just it just fascinates me what willie mays did, did, did at that stadium he, he really did wow and no no comparison to uh teenage mass on the speed skating track you're no you're no it didn't help me at all there man no <laughs> So you mentioned all those times, all those years, you really thought no regrets. But as you're as you watch Eric Hyden on the medal stand, you watch Bonnie Blair in a medal stand, you watch the Olympics every four years now and watch the speed skating and see these guys with their national anthems and sitting on the medal stand. And I'm and, you know, you I told you the winning times in 1976 and you're telling me without a doubt you could have beaten that. No, I won't say I won't say without a doubt. But I think I'd be right around. I'd be, but I'm are you imagining on that metal stand? Are you can you feel can you feel yeah. yourself up there when you watch these? Nah, I don't I don't look at it that way at all. You know, I don't look at it that I, I, I think that if I would have continued, I, I would have liked my chances or saying I think I think I would have competed very well. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know the old league, I, I you know I I, I kind of quit skating at a younger age, you know, so I didn't even reach my peak yet, to be honest with you. Yeah, right. Uh, in the training side, so I I, I, I feel like I, I would have would would have been in that situation, um, but I don't look at it looking at a medal stand even now, uh, thinking or regret that at all. Nah, that that doesn't even enter my mind. No. All right, so I got one more for you. Your big league career began in 1976, which is right around the time free agency was taking off. Um, mm-hmm. You sat in many meetings during your playing career with Marvin Miller, and then with yep. Fear. So as yep. you see the state of baseball where we are, we're in early February, and there's not an end in sight to a work stoppage here. Um, as a guy who's kind of been through those wars from very early on, what are, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on what's happening? 
Well, you know, well, one, it's, it, it's, it's uh, uh, sad, but, you know, I'm trying to, to figure out what, what this uh, war is about. You know, I know what it was back when I was playing. I know what we struck for and what, and what Marvin did. I don't know what they're doing now. I really don't. Um, you know, what are they looking to what, – what, what's their priority? I, I looked at some of the stuff where we looked at 1976, 77, and the minimum salary. And with the minimum salary, it was $16,000 a year, you know. So it, if they're arguing they want – Five or six hundred thousand, seven hundred thousand. That's great. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I looked at six. I, I knew that we were fighting for really rights because we were overwhelmed by ownership back in the '70s and '80s. You know, they had the they had the upper hand. There's no doubt. You knew that. You were around yeah. uh, with the reserve clause and free agency. The players didn't have much. Players have a lot today. Now that being said, I'm not saying the players are not looking to get things that they need. Yes, but there's, it seems like there's no give and take at all. I know the means that we went to with Marvin and stuff. You know, there's something to say, hey, this a, we're okay with this. So, you know, let's fight this. Uh, you know, let, let's fight this another day type thing. And you gave in. I don't know what they're doing. It seems like no side is budget. Do you agree or not? And you're in this as well. Well, yeah, nobody's moving. I, I mean, I see the sides. I mean, I'm a listen. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a worker. I'm not an owner. I'm a member of a union, so I understand. You know, I'm a member of a union that you know, while I've been in it, has never had to strike or been locked out. So I don't know that feeling. Yeah. Well, I understand. It's not fun. Of, I understand the side of where earnings are being restricted, uh, sometimes mm-hmm. artificially, but all within the rules. And while revenues are growing, the players feel like they need to be taken care of better. So right. uh, I, I understand the player's side of it very well. Okay. So with that being said, what you just said, and I think you, you said that well, is like the revenues are really growing in TV package from ownership side or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and the players want some of that is what you're saying or a piece of it or whatever they want. So why is it that like, let's, let's share the wealth type that, you know, yeah, sure. let's yeah. share something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, like I said, I, I've been on both sides of it. I've seen it. Uh, just hopefully that there's a resolution that uh, could get the game back. I think the game needs to change. Um, I think fans are getting a little, um, I don't know. I think the fans miss the old style of game. I think mm-hmm. uh, they want to change it to a lot of things that that uh, don't need to be changed. I think you know. Um, I don't know. The game's different nowadays, uh, but uh, it's still the greatest game in the world. And you got to get them on the field. And you got to play. And you got to get, get the fans back. And uh, you know, you want to see all the people. I mean, uh, get back to playing. I don't know. You better get back to playing, otherwise you won't have nothing to do, Sweeney. That's it. We're just gonna, I'm gonna have to find more Olympic events to talk about and things like that. <laughs> That's the only one I have, my man. So, well, what do you, I, so let me ask you that question. Do you, do you think there's going to be a resolution soon, or do you think that they're going to go into April or, or something I, to that nature? I think the closer uh, you get to March 1st, when then, then it becomes a real issue of potentially missing games. I think that's the deadline that hastens um, progress here. I don't think that anyone is really looking at the start of spring training as a, as a deadline that needs to be no. met. 
they're going to look at the, they're going to look at the idea of missing regular season games. And we're going to find, I think the downside is let's say for argument's sake that we get an agreement that happens early enough that regulars, there are no regular season games missed, but you still miss some spring training. Now I know from, from talking to position players like you that, you know, you don't need more than three or four weeks to get ready. It's too, it's already too long, but the pitchers have an issue and the injury situations that we've seen the last few years, um, a lot of it, even just the last two years, you had a, you had a weird and shorter spring in 2020, and that uh, led to some injury issues. The shortened season led to some problems in 2021 from a, a, a stamina and performance standpoint in some people. I think the more you flirt with messing up spring training this year, the more issues you're going to have physically with players as the season goes along. And that's a real, I think that's a real danger. Well, I think they're probably uh, won't have 162 games. And I, I think the owners are okay with that in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a rush to get games back in April. Um, uh, you know, whether it be five games or something, 10 games, whatever. But I, I don't know if I'm buying that point of guys getting hurt. Okay. As much. And here's my reasoning for that, thinking on that. It is so much of a 12-month year sport right now than it's ever been. Sure. These players now are bigger, stronger, faster. Their conditioning is unbelievable. They do it for 12 months. I mean, it may take them, I don't know, a few weeks off. So it, the, the constant uh, being in, uh, uh, working out and being in shape was not like it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. That I can tell you right now. Good so uh, you should be coming into camp almost to where you're ready to play a game other than the, the physical part of getting your arm in shape and getting your legs in shape. If you're not running and doing things basic wise outdoors, uh, you should be ready to go. You really should. So I, I, I don't think a player should worry about that as much. You know, I know players do not want to play 30 games in spring training, so they don't need the 30 games. I'll tell you a little story real quick. When I, when I first, this is how much the game has evolved and changed, that when I first signed, um, and people in New York will get this, I would go down to spring training, and I would go down, and I would take the like the, the day before spring training, I'd take a flight out of LaGuardia, I'd take Eastern Airlines, remember the old Eastern <laughs> Airlines flight, yeah. right? I'd take like a nine o'clock flight out, I get into St. Petersburg that night. I go to the hotel, wake up, and go to spring training the next morning. Start spring training the next day. I get down a day before, you know. So in the seventies, if you if you went down to Florida or spring training, let's say you went down there a week early or, or four or five days early, the guys on the team say, "What are you doing? What? How come you came down so early? Like, what are you doing?" <laughs> because there were no facilities for you to go to to work out. So. If I went to spring training that day and, and let's say and I wanted to go to the field, then no one had bats or balls out there. There was no one, no coach uh, working with you uh, yeah. to get ready. I mean, there were no facilities to work out. So you never went down early. So it was just so, so much. Day. So that, so I, you know, I remember, you know, going to spring training with Seaver and Kuzman guys and they, they would do the same thing. You know, you went to spring training to get in shape. You know, yeah, yeah. that was the, that was the mindset that not that it was wrong or you should have been wrong. that's not it's just it wasn't available for anyone you know so i couldn't go to, to camp and say okay is there a cage set up 
what cage? We don't have a cage. Uh, <laughs> can I go here? Uh, no, you see the beach and you go right on the beach. You know, that's that's what they, they told you. So completely different. Nowadays, you see the size of, of these uh, these kids coming in and they're just built like monsters. They work so hard. They, they, they got a diet that's unbelievable. Uh, they're, you know, how they're fed, you know, you know, the, you know, Jerry Grody always used to say, yeah, I'm going to get me a cheeseburger and then a Diet Coke. So I stay on my diet. That's what he said. So and that was the, that, that was your, your nutrition. So it's completely different now. So I don't know if players, if players are not ready to go now because of the competition and and because of the money, what, what is available to make. Exactly. And that's their own, yep. that's their own fault. That's, so, what, I was, that's what I was just going to say is that, you know, when, when you're only, when you're, uh, Looking at sixteen thousand uh, dollars a year as a major league minimum, you know your yeah. outlook on what you do in the offseason is a little bit different, probably. Oh yeah. Well, hey, sweetie, when I was in my leagues, I had to work in the wintertime. Yeah. What, what was your job? Yeah. What'd you do? What did you do in the winter? Well, I, I worked at I worked at JFK Airport. I drove the Caterpillar trucks around. You know, those, with the luggage. Uh huh. So, so if you had luggage, I, I probably lost it on you. <laughs> uh, you know, trucks. I worked in a department store. You know. Whatever I could do, work with some friends just to make extra money at that time. Because, you know, back then, you know, minor leaguers were, I took home $395 a month in the, in the minor leagues my first year. $395. And did you month. ever, did you ever and, pick up a bat from the end of the minor league season until the first day of spring training? Yes. Yes. You know yeah. what you did? You would go into the old gymnasium in high school, you know, the old gyms sure. mm-hmm. <laughs> with this, uh, uh and uh sometimes they would have uh a cage in there some, some high schools would back then i was telling my son you know when, when i first started in the minor leagues that we you know we lived in, a, in an apartment downstairs um in the building there was a garage and uh we used to uh, they park cars downstairs in the garage and i would go downstairs in the garage and throw against the wall with all these cars coming. Every time the door went open, a car come in, I had to stop throwing, you know? <laughs> and that's what I did. And, and, and you're right. That, Cause that's all you had. I mean, we would have killed to find places to, to have now. And now it's so readily available, which is great. That's not, that's not a bad thing. It's just, I kind of look back at what I had to do to get ready uh, and, and say, oh, that's kind of neat. Now this is what we did, but look what you have now, what's available. So, there's no reason for a player not to be ready to go now because everything's available. They really want you, you know, these, there's so many facilities down here that uh, in, in Florida, that I see that these kids are, are down here that are 15 years old or, or, or younger, you know, mm-hmm. they come down and train for a month for their high school season or, or yeah. Sandlot team. So it's, uh, it's really grown exponentially to this point. Of, of being ready in baseball, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, man. It's a, I, you know, you look back and say, oh man, I wish, I wish I had a tee. Man. I couldn't yeah. get a tee, <laughs> you know, because most of, most of our coaches were, and God bless them, man. I was so lucky. I, you know, I had coaches that came up that I loved them to death. They were like my uncles, but they're all the coaches. You know, they, they, they'd be smoking cigarettes behind the batting cage and, you know, mm-hmm. it's, hey, can I go hit? Hey, yeah, you already took five swings. Don't worry about it. You don't need any more. But I need more. Ah, you're good. Don't worry. See you tomorrow. And then you know, cigarettes behind the behind the cage, man. Oh, it was great, man. But they were like uncles to you, man. You know, like when I came up, I, I don't know if you remember uh, Phil Cabaretta. Phil yeah. Cabaretta. Phil Cabaretta was the hitting coach for the Mets. 
you know, he was MVP for the Cubs in 1945. Yeah. Uh, I loved him to death. Then we had uh, Rube Walker to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, the pitching coach. Who, uh, Joe had him as the pitching coach, and Joe Pignatano. And uh, they were just, you know, they were characters. They knew baseball. You talk about baseball all the time. You learned a lot from them. Uh, but, you know, just to get anything extra, <laughs> good luck, man. Good luck, man. But and I can tell you that, you know, I was lucky – uh, when I came up in 76, I had guys that really taught me baseball. Uh, yeah. taught, you know, I had Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Joe Torrey, yeah. uh, Buddy Harrelson. You know, um, they were – I learned a lot of hitting from Tom Seaver. I learned a lot about hitting from Jerry Kuzman. You know, they, they would tell you, they would talk to you about how they would set up hitters and how they pitch guys. And that's stuff that, that I didn't know or we didn't know coming out of the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. And it was just an education to listen to, you know, one of the greatest pitches of all time tell you what he looks for, uh, how he wants to set up hitters. I just don't think they do enough of that today. But, uh, you know, and then I had uh, Joe, who was my teammate. And he, yeah. He's the one that took me under his wing and taught me about the game and what big league life was and all that nature. And that, that was that's something that uh, you can never, ever get back. I mean, the, those I I just remember conversations to this day that that uh, you know we had and Jerry Kuzman. I love Jerry Kuzman to death, man. He's he's like one of my all time favorite teammates. You know, you uh, so, I, you I know, think you told me this, man. Didn't didn't like didn't Joe Torre just come say when you got called up here, come sit next to me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He said you stay with me, and he took me under his wing, and he says you just stick with me, and you know. 45 years later, we still are, you know, so that's, yeah. that's, that's special, you know, and Jerry Kuzman is, uh, you know, Jerry, like if you didn't really take a guy out or roll block him at second base, you know, Kuzman will come over and say, Hey, you got to take him out, you know, <laughs> or, you know, like not getting mad at you, but he's took, I just got to tell you, you got to take him out. Like I learned how to take guys out at second base, you know, listening to, to watching these guys and, you know, re- you learn how to roll block, you know, and, you know that's like, People don't even know what that means anymore, roll blocking, yeah. you know. And Jerry Kuzman, if someone pitched you a tighter in and Kuzman was pitching, he'd come over to you on a bench and Kuzman would say, hey, you want me to get him for you? I mean, <laughs> it was great, man. That's what he would say, you know. Like if you got brushed back, he'd say, hey, you want me to get him for you? <laughs> you know, things of that nature are priceless, you know. But it just doesn't happen nowadays, you know. So uh, I was fortunate enough to be around a lot of, a lot of, a lot of good uh, – baseball people and that's how you learn the game you really learn the game you know uh i was telling you know you sit down you know bobby valentine and i are like brothers man we you know we started out and we were roommates together and that relationship and how it evolved over the years has meant a lot to me so i was always around the good baseball people and good minds of just listening and, and being in conversation and i'm going to tell you something and, and I, I don't want to blow any smoke up you but you know Credit to you is you do that, you know, and I noticed that because I remember a couple of times when we were in hotel bars after the games and stuff, you'd always come over to me and talk baseball and ask questions. And, and, and I didn't forget that, you know, when you first started following the Yankees. Uh, am I correct on that? Yeah. Yeah. 2001, you were, that was your yeah. second year as a coach. I mean, yeah. and, you know, we had, you were nice enough to me when we had done shows, you know, take people behind the curtain a little bit, Howie Rose yeah. was broadcasting shows and I was his producer at Lee Mazzilli's sports cafe, 
um, yeah. on the west side in the mid 1990s. So uh, we yeah, uh, but even when you were on a beat, you, you didn't forget that. Like, I, I, let no. me throw it right back to you. You didn't forget that I was this kid who'd worked his way up the chain. And when I started covering the Yankees, you were I think you were the only person in the room that I knew that I had a relationship yeah. with. And you and you, you know, you were nice to me there, too. Well, not, not being nice. I, I'm saying it's, um, it, it was like you were inquisitive. You asked questions. You want to know about certain things. Yeah. And, you know, so that's how you learn. I was with a friend. Uh, well, leave nameless. And uh, I was at Joe Torres golf tournament and I was sitting down with Joe and Tony LaRusso and myself. And we're having breakfast for about a half hour or so, just talking, you know, about stuff, just talking baseball back and forth, back and forth. And as, as we left uh, breakfast and we got up and we were walking to go play golf, I said to my friend, I said, and that's how you learn about baseball. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just that's listen. how you learn. Yeah. That's all. You listen, you talk, you know, you agree, you disagree, you know, but you know, that that's the problem I, I see nowadays in the game from the analytics side of it, uh, which drives me crazy, <laughs> is that it's not analytics is not bad or the metrics yeah. and stuff, but they're not willing to give a take. And you know, like they give you a number and say, you know, this is gospel. And it's not gospel, man. Yeah. It's not. And you play this game. Uh, you know, so you got to be willing to say, yeah, I, yeah, that's, I agree there. But I also, what do you think about this? And they're not open enough to listen to what you're saying. And that's the wrong, uh, that's wrong. I, I think that hurts the game, you know. Uh, so, um, you know, you very well may say something to me. And you're not a player, but you've been around a game long enough. Yeah. And you might mention something to me and I might say, Ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> or no, or I might say, Sweeney, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But right. that's okay. But, but that's okay. And that's how I learned by asking you, yeah. is this is this good or is this not, not worth Ex that's, yes. yeah, exactly? Uh, and that's my point. And and from the analytics side of it, it's almost like we're we're right and you're wrong. Yeah. And that's so and, that, and that, that's just that's just not good. It's just not good for the overall game. Um, you have to listen to people and people have ideas that are so far-fetched and then some of them are right on target and you just don't know everything, you know, and, and you know, when, when we were coaching with the Yankees, you won four world championships with Joe and Fred Zimmer and you know, Mel and Willie and all of us, you know, we'd sit down, we'd talk and we'd talk on a bench about strategies and about plays and, and what do you think here? What do you want to use here? And, and it's like, you know, some things would say, you know, Zim, God rest his soul, will come up with some, some ideas and like Joe, Joe would like roll his eyes, like really? <laughs> and like, I, I look at Joe and, you know, in a, in a good way. And then, and then the next, then in like 20 seconds later, he'd say something else. And it was like, dang, let's do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you know what I'm saying? Or I don't know. I don't know. Well, hey, you're the manager. You got to make the call. But here, here, here it is. You lay it out. But it was in a good way, not a bad way. And no one's feelings got hurt. Uh, it wasn't that you were right or wrong. Just you threw it out on the table. And, you know, as a manager, you got to be able to decipher what's good and what's bad. But, you know, I learned that, too, as well, you know, coaching or managing. You know, all the great ones, they're all willing to take a risk. Uh, and Tony LaRusso would say that. Jim Leland, I played for, the good managers are willing to take a risk. And when 
that fails or doesn't work out, they're willing to answer to that risk. And that's the sign of a good manager because if you do everything one way by paper, then you're in a in a mediocre range of never being second guessed the questions and you, you never peek out. You know, you gotta be willing to take it. And and guess what? It doesn't work out all the time. And that's okay, you know. Right, I right. mean it's okay. It's just no, I don't think any coach that I've been around or manager ever or you know, when you're teaching a player or telling a player all across baseball, I don't think there's any coach or manager ever tells a player to do something or try something knowing that he's going to fail and right. or wants him right. to fail. You know, I think we all, we're all trying to do this from the goodness of our heart to think that we're telling them the right thing. We think it's the right thing, but they may not be able to execute that. Yeah, yeah. But you're not telling them to do this to fail on purpose. No, no coach would do that. No, I, I have well, never come across that. Like that. The other side of it, Maz, you I, and I've used this line before, but I don't have never actually credited with you. I've always, I've always kind of held your anonymity to this. But I, since I have you here, I'm just, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna credit it to you and tell you that yeah. I've used it. Um, it's, you know, there. 50,000 people in the seats every night who pretty much know when to bunt or when to take out a pitcher. It's about right. dealing with the people and the personalities. That's what right. gets you uh, through a season and, and, and with a team. Oh, no question. But here's the problem. You don't bunt and you don't hit run anymore. So <laughs> right, 50,000 right. people don't know what they're, yeah. what they're doing. Right. But, you know, I, I learned this from Willie Mays being around Willie Mays. And, and I learned this and I teach this to this day about base running. You know, we talked about base running, how great a uh, uh, base runner that Willie was and how daring he was and what he did. And, you know, we were talking about things like coaches and what they do. He goes, Willie, in his high-pitched voice, I, I don't need no coach. You know, <laughs> I, and I, I love Willie to death, you know. Um, we're talking about, about, about coaching, uh, about base running and stuff. And I hold this to this day is the edge that a player wants. We always want that little edge. Somehow we have to find that edge. And when he would talk about base running, he would say, well, we're going to go first to third on a base to left field, right? Or we're going to tag up on a certain ball in a corner that's a short fly. And he'd give you all these all these things that could happen in the middle of a game. And I said, well, how do you do that? He'd say this. Well, when he'd score, score from first to home, he'd always say, you know why I can do this? I said, well, how can you do that? He says, you know why I can do it? Because I'm the only one in this stadium that knows what I'm going to do. <laughs> not the people, not my third base coach, yeah. not my first base coach, not my manager. I'm the only one that knows what I'm going to do next. He said, because... He says, the coach might be waving me in, but he doesn't know that my legs are hurting me. I know I can't score. Yeah. You know, so I'm not going to do that. Or coach doesn't know. Third base guy doesn't know, man, that I feel good, man. My legs are light. Or whatever he, yeah. he, he tried to imply. And you sat back and you said, yeah, that's it. Huh. So out of 50,000 people, he's only one guy that knows what's going on or what he's going to do next. Yeah. So – I, I learned that from him as 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 a base runner. The element of surprise, he always said. The element of surprise, you know, he's great. He's just. Uh, I really wish I 
and I got to see him play, obviously, you know, and, and yeah. stuff. But I, I wish I would have got to see him play in the fifties, you know. Sure. When yeah. he came up, oh man! Or watched Mickey Mantle play, you know. I, I miss that. Those are the things that you regret in baseball that you didn't see those plays play at their prime. You know, I, I don't. I'm not too sure Mickey Mantle ever played in his prime after his first right. year. I mean, he could have been the greatest thing ever. You know, after he, he blew his D out. You ever see a clip of him not limping or hurting? Yeah, yeah not, not after 1951, no. Yeah, so that was like what his first year when he in the World Series he blew his knee out. So just think how great he would have been watching him in his prime, you know. And then Hank Aaron, I, I would have loved to see Hank Aaron. You, know, you wish you would have gotten to see those in their prime, uh, but you got to see him on TV. You know, they're they're pretty yeah. good, and you got to you got to hear the stories from the other players, which is even better, you know. Yeah. I, I remember the story. I think I don't know who told me this, but um, when they had the baseball writers dinner and they were on uh, Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, and Duke Snyder at the uh, sure. at the yeah. dinner, and the famous quote from Mickey Mantle was, "Willie, Duke, and I always knew you were the better center fielder." Something yeah. to that effect. I'm trying to paraphrase what he said. Mm-hmm. And uh, and can you imagine that being there? I remember the '76. Game, I think 77, old timers day at Chase Stadium. Uh, I was playing center field, and who comes out of the gates? And you saw that picture, yes, right? yeah, you were that there that day, playing that day, yeah, yeah, we played it, yeah. And there's Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, Duke Snyder, Joe D. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine those four walking out and you're going out to that field and playing? I better not ruin. I better not ruin this position, guys. But that's like hollow ground, man. You weren't you didn't want to drop any balls that day, did you? No, and they and they came out. I mean, that that's hollow ground. Are you kidding, man? That that they should have took that that patch of grass. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And just dug it up, man. That's yeah. like the holy grail of center fielders, man. Is yeah. those four guys walking out together? That's like I, I look at that picture have you seen that picture right yes very famous uh, and it's like and it's like what and all of a sudden you just start thinking about these great players man it's like wow look at this mm-hmm. man what he did what it's just that's one of the greatest pictures i i that's one of my favorite pictures to see i have it somewhere i don't mm-hmm. know where but i have it somewhere you know what the best part about that is that they were so so interested in in you and talk to you and they're just like you know, it's like you talking to Ed- Edward R. Murrow, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's something you know like what I'm saying? That. Sure, yeah. It's something like uh-huh. that, you know? Yeah. But, uh, How about Vince, like Vin Scully, Harry Callis? Yeah. These are my, you know, if I sat in, if I, if I, you know, if I'm sitting in a, in a press box and Vince Scully, Harry Callis, and, you know, uh, whoever else you want to name, walk Howard in. Howard Cosell. Yeah, walk in there. That's, that's the same picture. Yeah. Yes. Oh, no doubt. You know, you get the chance to hear Vince Scully now, and it's just, he's like, you listen to his voice, and it's just like tranquility. It's just like, mm-hmm. oh, man, so relaxing hearing him. It's just like he can almost nod off in a good way. Like, Soundtrack is summer, right? You know what's Oh, coming. man, it's just, just just great, you know. Hey, and the Mets had some good ones, you know, with Kiner and Murphy yeah. and Lindsey Nelson. and Yeah. Yeah, you know. When I was young, I got a chance to talk to Lindsay about Notre Dame football, what he oh, did. And, you know, Bob Murphy was just Murph. And he was yes. great. And Ralph would tell you the story. You know, and the Yankees had all the great analysis, too. It's just, it's, 
those are special times and those are the things that that you know like you and i could really talk about now that uh people of our age and stuff can remember that which is kind of it's kind of cool and, well we'll uh hopefully we get a chance to share stories like this at a ballpark again sometime later this yeah summer. we will we will because you can't ruin a great game you could uh give it a black eye here and there and there and then but baseball come up fighting again man we'll come back fighting you know my thanks to Lee Mazzilli, who, as you heard in the course of the conversation, I first met in 1994 when I was a young producer at WFAN. Later, Mazzilli was a Yankees coach when I began covering the team in 2001. He's a fixture at Yankees Old Timers Day and will quite certainly be a part of the Mets festivities in the coming years. The announcement this week that the Mets will be bringing back that tradition this summer. Also, special thanks to my friend and colleague, Anthony McCarron, who provided almost all my research material with an article he wrote on Mazzilli's speed skating career in the New York Daily News in 2020. Hey, if you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at Odyssey and Apple Podcasts. Check out my last conversation with Chris Dickerson, the former Yankees outfielder who's working on efforts to save the planet, among other post-career adventures. You can also go back and hear recent chats with former Mets first baseman Rico Bronia and filmmaker Andrew Bergman. Make sure to subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app.